want to introduce you to uh, Rick Donlin, who's the new chair of the Domestic Missions Commission. Rick is an internist and a pediatrician. He uh, did a combined residency at the University of Tennessee in Memphis. Uh, he's been a CMDA member since 1987. Actually, uh, is the co-founder of the inner city Christian clinic in Memphis called Christ Community Medical Clinic. It's a it's an interesting story. I'll let him tell it to you during the interview of how he and three uh, CMDA members from med school kind of coveted to uh, come together and reach out to the poor. Uh, Rick is married to Laurie, and they have five children ranging from two to eight years of age, busy household. It's just uh, a joy to have him come and kind of educate us about the domestic mission scene and, and ways each of us can be involved in reaching out in the mission field God has given us in our own community. Rick, you've been involved in domestic mission outreach since when? I mean, when did this all begin? Clear back into medical school. Yeah, that's right, David. We started as a small, what was then the CMS group at State University in New Orleans. And our small group, accountability group, ended up being the foundation of, of our practice. Four people from that group, all classmates, uh, were the four founding partners of our work. So how did you end up in Memphis, and uh, did you get involved actually in medical school and doing outreach to the poor? How did it all begin? We did some very small things in New Orleans. We had some Bible club outreaches and the housing projects there. Memphis was just a God thing. We think I came here to Memphis to do my residency, but the three other partners and founders went elsewhere and did other training. And when we were finishing up, getting to the point where we are going to be able to start, we looked for opportunities back in Louisiana that didn't work out, some rural opportunities in other parts of the South, and it just happened that Memphis uh, had a big group of underserved people and very few health resources, and it, it just worked out. So how do you begin? I mean, I, I'm, I'm sitting out here listening to this tape, and I'm thinking, okay, four guys get out of residency, and they're going to start an outreach to the poor. Plus, they got to support their families. Uh, how do you go about this? I mean, how did it happen? It is uh, a little difficult. There are some resources available now through the Domestic Missions Commission and particularly through the Jericho Road Foundation, which is uh, a sister organization, where uh, a few of us uh, who have gone through this make resources and, and consulting available to people. I guess the short answer to the question is you look to the location where you think God is leading and you first have to secure the physician leadership, which in our case we had four doctors right away, but I think in a lot of locations, that's probably the great limiting step. And then after that, uh, figuring out how you're going to fund it, what sort of model you're going to use. Are you going to be a free clinic? Are you going to be a clinic that uh, sort of balances suburban or private care with poor care in another setting? There are several different ways to skin the cat. Tell me your story. Walk us through it from uh, when you're, you know, six months from getting out of residency to emails or letters are going back and forth, the phone calls. How did this all happen? If it's one thing we've learned, it started with praying. All the way from the time we were medical students, we had a very uh, committed group of people. And even in our third and fourth year elective times where everybody was so spread around, we made it a point of coming together and, and praying and thinking about that. So that, I think, undergirded everything. We are, Our first question was, where are we going to do this? And I sort of talked to you a little bit about that, finding the location. And that, we hope, uh, still was directed mostly by where the greatest need was. And then we founded ourselves as a 501c3, and we sought partners because, as you know, 
uh, running the hospital in Kenya for years and years. You can't do that without funding. We finally partnered with a local hospital system here, the Baptist Healthcare System in Memphis, who helped us. Probably the biggest thing they did to help us was they co-signed a line of credit at the bank for us, and that allowed us to find a location in the inner city and get some folks in there to build it out for medical space and we had to then make the efforts to contract with all of the different uh, Medicaid health care providers here in Tennessee, and that was a time when our Medicaid system was in the, and still is in a lot of uproar. But we supported ourselves really by doing a lot of moonlighting early on, and uh, there were three of the four of us worked at the county hospital doing emergency room work, and that continued probably into our second year. How did you find the space? Was it a warehouse? What was it? It was an abandoned or a formerly uh, occupied grocery store. And our original clinic, we actually have two fixed sites now and a mobile van, but our original clinic that we opened six and a half years ago is very strategically located. It's right between the only functioning skating rink and one of the large food stamp offices, which is well-known in the community. Yeah, I can think next to the food stamp office would make sure you had a whole train of people coming right. in frequently. Yeah. So it took about a year. How, how long to open the doors? Of the four of us, two of us finished in three years. We had a family physician and an internist, and I'm a combined medicine peds doc, and our other partner was OB doc. So we had four years of training. So they moved to Memphis and did a lot of the early leg work while we were still finishing our training. And then it took an additional year and a half beyond that until we finally got the doors open in mid nineteen, late 1995. So I guess two years. How did it go? I mean, you open the doors. Obviously, there's probably people that want to come. But did you kind of do the reduced fee model or, or uh, graduated uh, fee scale or was it completely free? What model did you pick? Our business model was dependent upon some compensation from the state Medicaid system, which in Tennessee is a managed care Medicaid system, and it had only been put in place about a year prior to that in 1994. And so under that system, if you had patients assigned to you, there were capitated payments, and it looked like it would work very well on paper, but we almost went bankrupt in the first four or five months because we had trouble convincing some of the managed care organizations that we were legitimate. We had some issues where some of the providers who'd been serving the inner city for years were you know, rightfully probably a little suspicious of these wet behind the ear white boys who were coming into the neighborhood and and just the, the payment structure and the way money has changed hands in the Medicaid system in Tennessee has also been very problematic. So I actually pulled out and went back to full-time ER work as a contract ER doctor for our ministry and we our doctors had to sort of ratchet down the salaries. Uh, we sort of shared a couple of salaries between four families for a time. Got a little bit more help from the Baptist Hospital System in the, in the short term. And then, again, praying and trusting God that he hadn't brought us to that point to see us collapse, things began to turn around. So what happened next? The, the, the money's kind of dried up, and you're doing some ER work, and a lot of prayers going on. Right. What, uh, what began to turn the corner, and, and what was the response in the community? I mean, uh, as you said, when these four white boys came into the inner city and uh, said they wanted to help the poor. From an earthly perspective, I think the biggest thing that turned us around is that the managed care organizations who had all of these Medicaid patients assigned to them from the state of Tennessee believed in us enough to start assigning patients to us. And, a thousand patients to the practice was $13 per patient per month, and 
that happened uh, a few times. We got some more infusions of patients, and we were the only healthcare provider for a population initially of about 50,000 people, but they had all been assigned to other physicians outside of the community. And when that started to happen, when the managed care organizations began to assign patients, and when we delivered what we hoped then and now is superior Christ-centered care, the patients really started to pour in. I don't know how many thousands of patients we have assigned at the locations now, but we are almost always at capacity and very busy and always looking at opportunities to grow. And we, we knew that would happen, or we thought we did, that, that that would happen if we did it, you know, for God's glory and, and his strength and power, that we would have more than enough uh, to do. Superior Christ-centered care, what's that look like? It actually uh, has evolved, I think, over the seven years. Um, we started by putting everybody in a plane, I think our first year or second year to North Carolina to do the sailing solution. The very first year it was out. Hmm. We've used that in various ways, uh, and we renew that. We've got the tape series, and we go over that. And just this past weekend in Memphis, we sent several employees again to the the seminar. So that's been a big part of it. But some of the emerging things that you're familiar with, because I know I've seen you at some of these conferences about viewing the whole patient – holistic care and the impact that Jesus has on all the, the parts of their lives and the, you know, knowing what Jesus can do to get rid of the alienation and bondage and some of the conflict that is probably more openly obvious among our patient population than the average American patient population. And so the problems are worse, but where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and God can get even more glory when he rescues and redeems people like that. Give me some practical examples of what you do in your practice. I mean, the patient walks in. Are they going to see something different there? Obviously, loving, caring staff that really want to serve them or they wouldn't be there. But what else? I mean, how do you turn those principles into practical things you do every day? We have, even on our initial health forms, we have a spiritual section of that where we ask people about their if they're willing to share their religious views and convictions. And we ask them if they have interests and discussing those issues or prayer requests, specifically prayer requests. We really push for that in, in trying to find ways to pray with our folks. And in the inner city in Memphis, many people have some connection to church, and they're very comfortable with that. It's part of African-American culture for many people, although there are certainly lots of unchurched, especially younger people that we care for. But personally, myself and my partners, we have more and more been looking for that in that way to try to explain the symptoms that are obviously more than just a physical manifestation of disease and asking the questions about, well, who do you live with? Uh, What is your family situation like? What is your social support like? Are you involved in church? Is it a good church? Is it helpful? Are you praying? Do you you believe in strength from the Bible? And and it just easily comes into conversations, and it can naturally be a, a big part of it. And then again, remember that many of our patients are very aware of how desperately in need they are. I wish more of people like me and us would see that reality as well, because if you are addicted to crack cocaine and you've tried and tried and been in treatment three or four times, or you are selling your body for drugs or having difficulty keeping your family together, the need and the responsiveness to Jesus, I think, is more real. And it's on the surface and easier to get to. What do you do about all the social issues? Uh, you know, you have a great evangelism thrust, and it's obviously integrated through everything you do in the practice. 
What do you do when patients come in and there's housing problems or there's a relationship problem or, you know, all the things that impact health? You know, the right. woman comes in, she's depressed or there's an addiction issue. How how do you approach that if follow-up, maybe not by the doctor, but are there any other programs or systems that you've put in place to, to help deal with those issues? That's another place where I think we've sort of learned a few things. We certainly have partners, some of them Christian organizations and plenty of them just governmental organizations, women who are in abusive situations and need housing or short-term help with utility bills or clothes or, or food. Those things we can work out fairly easily. We have more difficulty with some of the more complicated issues, and we have decided to try to put as much of our resources into the African-American church as possible. What I mean by that is we have an excellent Ph.D. psychologist. His name is Alex Galloway. But rather than him running a bunch of counseling sessions and group sessions, he does some of that. He spends uh, about three-fourths of his time meeting with pastors and equipping pastors and lay leaders with counseling skills and sort of triage skills so that lots of that sort of support can be done in the local church where we feel like it should be done. And Alex and the clinic are sort of a backup for folks who need more help than those pastors and lay leaders can do. We also have sort of targeted young women, and we do a lot of three or 400 deliveries a year of mostly poor women and their children. So we, again, with the help of funders here locally, we used a modified saline solution program in a home visitation ministry where we had three Christian nurses, both, all three of them with skills in evangelism also, who would make home visits to first-time pregnant moms and give them some health information, pregnancy, and preparation for delivery information. But every visit also had part of the saline solution evangelism program as a part of it, too. And that was a formal study funded by a local foundation, and we're just kind of working through the data now. But we're hoping that some of the other data and other similar studies, minus the Christian part, will come to bear in our situation, too. And there'll be less premature births and all the difficulties attendant to that. I'm kind of sensing, you know, we kind of left this thing with uh, you four guys there in your startup days. And uh, I think we need to fast forward to the present because I'm sensing there's a lot more going on now than there was initially with two sites. How many other people are involved? Are there volunteers coming in from the community? I mean, this thing sounds like it's grown enormous. It is uh, much larger by God's grace. We started with four physicians, as I said, and I, I think we, we will probably by the end of this year have either 10 or 11 doctors working. The newer ways of doctors who've come in behind the founders I don't mean this in any way in false humility. They've been sharper, brighter, more committed than we were even. And there's a movement on this next generation of doctors. I say next generation, they're you know eight or ten years behind us. But they're moving into the communities where, where we haven't been living, but where the clinics are located, for instance. And so there are even more stories that we're getting of, of people's lives being impacted with the gospel. And there are small group Bible studies that are springing up in the neighborhoods uh, that are being led by and then hopefully passed on and, and multiplied as leaders are developed. This has just been, as you said, God has just been gracious beyond what we could understand and what we expected. I can never remember the exact place in Ephesians, but he does abundantly more than we expect or hope, and that's, that's what we've seen time and again. Boy, it sounds that way. Now, let's kind of step back a little bit. We've kind of focused down on Memphis. Let's pull back the camera 
and look at the country as a whole. You're head of the the Domestic Mission Commission. You're working with other groups that are involved in this type of activities, trying to motivate and mobilize and equip people to have outreach into their own communities. And let's talk about that a little bit. It doesn't have some people are going to go into this full time, but I think there also is a place for those who may have a practice but are volunteering their services periodically to assist in these endeavors. Kind of give us the global picture and then kind of focus in on how I, as a Christian doctor in private practice, can have an impact on what's happening in our country at the domestic mission level. Traditionally, the DMC has, the strength has been providing consulting and assistance service to people who are ready to go start something new and quit their jobs or come out of residency and do something among the poor. And that is a strength and that's a very valuable thing. And I don't want to minimize that at all, especially the former chairman, Bill Crevier, and the Jericho Road Foundation. They helped us when we were getting started. They've helped a dozen other groups in different places in the country recruit physicians and raise millions of dollars to do that. So that's always, I hope, going to be part of what the Domestic Missions Commission does. We talked a little bit about mentoring, and I know it's a CMDA priority. Another part of what we want to see happening is especially students and residents getting exposure to the possibilities of a career or some involvement in this kind of work. And so to that end, here at our local level, we try to have our docs meeting with students and mentoring students. And I think we're going to try to make a bigger effort to be at student conferences and and reach out to the students in that way also. The big nut to crack, as you said, is how do you talk to one of our 16,000 CMDA members who has got 60 hours of clinical work every week and a family of however many and responsibilities and partners. Maybe he he or she worked for an HMO or a a university system. Where can we help those doctors participate in this? And that's something that we are putting some significant attention to, and we're trying to do some model things here in Memphis because we're very blessed We've got the present president of CMDA here, Al Weir, but there's an even older, more established Christian health ministry called the Church Health Center, also in Memphis. And the Church Health Center is primarily a a volunteer model. And so we're looking at ways that our local CMDA council can provide volunteers in that setting, working with the Church Health Center and with Christ Community Clinic to do things on a less than, you know, entire life commitment sort of thing where you don't have to move into the inner city to participate We'd like to see people using their influence on medical staffs and in medical societies to lobby on behalf of good policies for the poor. That's something that could be done without a lot of effort, and some people have capacity to do that. Spending time mentoring students in the the same context among the poor, I think, is a great thing that people who have other responsibilities can do to some degree. Raising people's consciousness to the situation, I think, is the biggest challenge of all. How would you kind of sum this all up? If you were just, Rick, you, you got 16,000 people listen to you, what is the key message you want to say to them as we close this interview? I think um, I would share the prayer that I, I think I first heard from Ron Sider, which is, Lord, teach me to have your heart for the poor. And that's the beginning as we're seeking God and praying. God has great concern for these people. I know it. And As you just said, if we are willing to open ourselves up to God's perspective on things and see where he might use us, that's the beginning. We are not necessary to God in any way. He doesn't need us to do this. But if we'll seek him, he's pleased to use us. And I think he wants to. I think he wants to give us more joy than we have and to show us that it's not just fighting insurance companies and 
and the difficulties of making a living in medicine, that we really do have gifts that can be used to bring glory to Jesus and to introduce people to Jesus among folks in our own country who who really don't often have good health care or exposure to those truths. Well, Rick, I just want to express my appreciation and, and that of all of our members for the great example you've been to us. And be assured of our prayers for you as you face challenges every day. I know it's not easy. I know what it is to be a missionary, and that's what you guys are in Memphis. And uh, But I think the thrill that you're having every day that too often we miss is exercising your faith and seeing God at work, uh, realizing it's not you, it's Him that's working in these people's lives and solving, solving the problems of the finances and the other issues in your clinic and outreach. And uh, there's nothing that is more thrilling than to be in the center of God's will and see Him using you for His glory. So thank you for sharing this with us, and may God bless you and your family richly. Oh, thank you so much. God bless you, too. One of the reasons I wanted to have Rick on is I just think we here at CMBA and our members need to be paying a lot more attention to the needs in our own community. We've uh, made tremendous progress in our outreach overseas through Global Health Outreach, COAMIA, and we want to continue and expand those. But uh, I'm turning my attention to our own backyard and how we can motivate, network, catalyze members to be involved in outreach in their own communities. Maybe you're saying to yourself, You know, I need to be volunteering. I need to be giving back uh, something to my own community. And there's an outreach in your own community already going on. I encourage you to to get involved. But perhaps there's not. Perhaps uh, there's no place where you can give of your skills. And uh, maybe you and uh, maybe some other docs in your community want to begin talking about this. If you want some assistance in how to start a uh, community outreach, I encourage you to contact the Jericho Road Foundation. Uh, It's uh, headed by Bill Crevier, our former head of the Domestic Mission Commission. Uh, You can contact them at 708-206-0010. They have all kinds of information on how to start one of these, what's needed, how to get the finances, how to meet the federal regulations. Uh, Just can answer almost any question that you can uh, put forward. Or you may want to contact Rick Donlin directly. Uh, We've put his email address in the companion. Or Christian Community Health Fellowship. Uh, All these groups, including the Domestic Mission Commission, can really help you get the information you need to make a difference. And uh, I just pray that God's going to lay on your heart uh, using your skills to reach out to people in need uh, right there in your own backyard. And if we can help here at CMDA, Uh, Don't hesitate to ask. And in our uh, Christian Doctors Companion Digest, we've listed some other great resources on domestic missions uh, that will help you get in contact with people who are very knowledgeable in this area.